Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Kelly Hammond, who's Assistant Professor of East Asian History at the University of Arkansas. And she'll be talking about her new book, China's Muslims and Japan's Empire, Centering Islam in World War II, which was published this year, 2020, by University of North Carolina Press. The role played by minority groups in imperial projects is often a complex one, and perhaps particularly so in 20th century East Asia, where the expansion of the Japanese empire occurred precisely as new discussions were emerging over the meaning of the nation itself and the place of cultural, linguistic, and religious identities within it. Japan's 1930s and 1940s acquisition of territories on the Asian mainland, and particularly in northeastern and northern China, entailed a host of encounters with new Muslim subjects, and as Kelly Hammond's book shows, their situation sheds new light on a wide range of less-considered aspects of empire, identity, transnational connection, and world war in this region and beyond. Hammond demonstrates how, just as they were becoming the subject of both political and scholarly Japanese interest, Chinese Muslims were also deeply involved in debates over their place in an emerging post-dynastic China as well as exploring other connections to Islamic groups elsewhere in Asia and the world. The Japanese, for their part, attempted to write Muslims in China and Southeast Asia into a wider story of Pan-Asian empire, while also navigating global alliances with fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. Throughout the book, Hammond deftly navigates the multi-layered transnational stories which centering Chinese Muslims brings into focus, balancing multi-perspectival consideration of intellectual and policy discussions in both Japan and across China, and perhaps most importantly, allowing for the voices of Chinese Muslims themselves to come to the fore. The experiences of these people caught between imperial spaces, the author shows, offer not only a reframing of a particularly febrile period of recent history, but also offer resonances which continued throughout the Cold War and even up to the present. But uh, in this present... Uh, troubled as it is, uh, I'll say welcome, Kelly Hammond, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. It's great to be here with you today. Well, uh, great to have you on to talk about this uh, really fantastic book, which is so full of uh, unexpected and I think, uh, you know, to many people, completely new insights into this amazing uh, story. Um, But uh, before we get into that, perhaps I'll begin by asking you something of your own academic background and how you came to be interested in the subjects that fill this book. Yeah, I mean the the sort of the way that I sort of came to this project um, was a was a really organic one, and my first encounter with Muslims in China really came from my first time living in Shanghai, and um, I ended up living um, next to a mosque and regularly eating at a little Muslim restaurant that um, was across the street from the mosque, and I sort of started wondering a little bit about a little bit more about Muslims in China. Um, And those projects, you know, my intellectual curiosity about that sort of developed over time. And um, I ended up 
starting uh, to pursue or I ended up pursuing a PhD um, at Georgetown with uh, James Millward, focusing specifically on the history of um, Islam in China. And when I started my PhD, um, he, he sort of presented me with an opportunity to either choose to learn Russian or to learn Japanese. And um, I went the Japanese route. Um, so as I was starting to learn Japanese, I was kind of telling people about, you know, my interests. And w one of the people I was, I told this to was, um, Jonathan Lippmann. And he said, hold on a minute. I think I have some articles in my basement that have to do with like, you know, the, the, the collaboration between or sort of Japanese interest in Muslims during the second world war. And he sent me this whole stack of articles that I painstakingly made my way through. I was, as I was learning, um, Japanese and that sort of planted the seeds for, um, what would become, uh, the, the, this project and, and, and eventually become this book. Right, so right. that's kind of how I, that like started out with the getting there, I guess. <laughs> That's, yeah, well, that, that makes sense and I think makes for a pretty interesting early encounter with, uh, I don't know, with Japanese language documents, for example. I mean, plenty of people might be doing uh, Japanese or learning the language in order to read things of a more pop culture nature, perhaps. So I think delving into a, a, an obscure trove of documentation about interest in Chinese Muslims is a, yeah, well, a fitting, a fitting baptism of some kind. For, for this project. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll, uh, we'll get into talking, I think more about, you know, how you sort of uh, ended up writing about uh, about this uh, group of people. Um, and, you know, as we sort of get into the introduction of the book itself, um, perhaps I'll sort of ask just for you to define uh, who the Chinese Muslims are that you discuss. I mean, you, you use the term Sino-Muslims. Um, so do you want to give us a kind of picture of who they are and, uh, and, and why it is that you chose that term? Right. Well, um, you know, there are a number of different terms that we could use to talk about the people that I'm um, that I'm writing about in my book. But um, I specifically cho chose the term Sino-Muslim to indicate, firstly, that I am not talking about the sort of the Turkic minority or um, Turkic minority groups that live in Western China, such as the Kazakhs or the Uyghurs. Um, I'm specifically talking and writing about a group of Muslims in China who for a long time um, have written in Chinese um, and are sort of considered to be ethnically more Chinese than um, the, 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 the groups that live in further Western China. Um, and so there's a little bit of contention about why what what this term means and wh why I specifically chose the term Sino-Muslims. Um, firstly, it has a sort of long, uh, a developed intellectual pedigree and people like Jonathan Lippmann have used it for a while. Um, and the reason that I chose it is because I did not want to use the officially designated category um, of the Chinese nation state of the PRC of Hui or Huizu um, because I sort of wanted to talk about these people on their own terms and think about the ways that they were thinking and just, you know, thinking about how they would fit into the place, their new place in the Chinese nation state without the baggage of um, the, 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 the Chinese, the current Chinese party state's term for um, the, the, these people who make up a, a sizable minority in the People's Republic of China. Right, and I mean it, that that's a, it seems 
very relevant and, and yeah, a well-grounded decision. Um, as far as that Huizu, uh term c- came about, I mean, actually, it's you know, it's a, a compared, I think, for the Uyghurs or, or other Muslim groups within China, it's not something that not not a group that has been written about quite so much. Perhaps I don't know if that's fair to say. You can contradict me. But uh, what is that? What where does that term come from in particular? Well, I mean, it is an older term, um, and it has you know the the the, the Hui and the Huizu have you know, the Hui have been around for a long time, and that term is not a new one. But um, I just wanted to sort of disambiguate um, the, the the terms that the party now uses to, to, to classify these people um, from some of the, the ways that I wanted to speak about them historically, because I think it really, it gets so tangled up in the sort of current narratives of um, the place of Islam in China that I wanted to sort of give these, give voice to these people and help them sort of maybe recover some of their history um, by allowing to sort of show that in the 1930s and 1940s, these ideas were fiercely debated and fiercely contested. And we shouldn't just sort of assume that these pe- there was like a sort of direct line from the 1930s to the present on how Islam is practiced and how people um, understood these terms in, in in the past. So, mm-hmm. well, the book does a terrific job of kind of of doing, I think, that disambiguation both you know terminologically, but also the kind of uh, complex narrative it weaves and the way it moves between so many different um, perspectives, as I mentioned in the intro there. Um, I mean, as far as those kind of or the main perspectives uh, that we're interested in here are concerned, why were this uh, group of people particularly important or interesting to, I guess, a China as uh, as sort of new ideas of Chinese nationhood or statehood were emerging at this time, and then b to uh, the Japanese empire as you've mentioned already. Um, yeah, I guess in terms of their importance or. The, the way that the the, early, the the Chinese nationalists were thinking about um, minority groups in the 1930s and 1940s, you know, there there was a, a very strong desire on the part of the Chinese nationalists to maintain the territorial integrity or to reassemble the territory of, of the the fallen Qing Empire. And in, I think we all know that in order to do that, they needed to make appeals to um, peoples who lived in the peripheries, like the Tibetans, the Mongolians, and in my specific case, um, Muslims. Um, and I think that you know they had a hard time trying to figure out how to how to incorporate these people into their vision for a Chinese nation state that when a lot of the sort of ethno-nationalist rhetoric that was coming from the, the Chinese nationalists was, I mean, was very Han-centric and very centered on Han Chinese, on Han Chinese stories. So there was a sort of tension there. And I think that tension um, allowed a space for alternative voices and alternative, um, um, alternative spaces and alternative modes of support for the Chinese, for in my, in my specific case, for Chinese Muslims who were able to sort of look beyond some of the hollowness of the ethno-nationalist policies of the Chinese nationalists and look to other people um, for backing or support in some of the reforms that they hoped to um, implement um, within their own communities. So in some cases, it was the Soviets. In some cases, it was the Japanese. 
in some case it was um, the, the you know the Chinese communists, but um, yeah, so there was just a, a space and an opportunity um, in that time to l- look to other um, perhaps you could call them benefactors to support reform ideas within their own communities. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that, that and, and uh, you also do bring in the kind of importance of some of these, I guess, potential, you know, competing uh, interests uh, beyond just uh, China and Japan um, in, in the book. And uh, as we move on, though, to this question of Japan and Japan being this the kind of uh, particular center of, in, of focus on this community, uh, how does that particular interest and, and the kind of um, Japanese focus on it that you uh you know, I guess, gleaned from these from these documents, uh, dug out of the basement or wherever it was. Um, that sorry, that sounds very 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 dismissive, but uh, <laughs> I, I only only mean it uh, in you know in, as far as your own history is concerned. Um, so the, the the interest from the Japanese side in in Chinese Muslims, how does that complicate or kind of uh, add to our understanding of of the Japanese imperial project in general? Yeah, well, I think it does a number of things. Um, not only to complicate the our understanding of the Japanese imperial project on the Chinese mainland, but to um, sort of complicate narratives of resistance um, from you know that are sort of very prominent in the ways that the the People's Republic of China presents um, people during collaborators and resistors during the war. So what I was really hoping to do was to very clearly and show that there was no unified Muslim, Sino-Muslim resistance to the Japanese empire during the Second World War. And that, in fact, a number of um, groups of Muslims found it to their benefit to work with and collaborate um, with the Japanese empire. And I think that in a a way, what this does is it gives us a, a new perspective on not only on the, the the sort of temporal and spatial understanding of the Japanese empire, but it presents us with an opportunity to sort of like, quote unquote, return the gaze. Um, a lot of the work that's been done on the Japanese empire follows people from the homelands or the home islands um, as they travel out into the colonies. And I think um, it, it, in my case, I'm showing you know, people that are living under occupation and living within the, the boundaries of the Japanese empire and beyond the boundaries of the Japanese, the greatest territorial extent of the Japanese empire, and that showing their experiences traveling to the metropole and the ways that they understood um, Japanese imperial space. So I think I'm sort of adding another, it's, it's not like a complete Break, but I'm sort of adding another layer to some of the the, the work that's be, being done recently on um, different types of peoples that um, inhabited the the Japanese Empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the kind of distances that the book traverses and the uh, the kind of yeah weaving I don't know between sort of interstices of of, of grander narratives that you might associate with particular blocks like Japanese Empire, like. I guess China as a whole, but then also even beyond that to uh, to the Middle East and and South Asia, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. I think that is you know that is a, it's almost a yeah sort of narrative performance of that uh, exercise in adding to our sense of where people fit and and the greater complexity of who fell within some of these uh, larger scale projects. Um, but just also, I guess I'm curious 
to know more about the particular technicalities of getting to grips with all of this because uh, you do mention in your uh, sort of introduction or your uh, I believe in a sort of preface that you know it's, you're drawing on sources in five languages and across seven countries so could you also just say a bit more about how the practical exercise of doing this research sort of developed yeah um it's it i mean it's it's been a long it's been obviously a long time in the making and many different trips and many different um trips to china to taiwan um to tokyo as well as trips to the national archives in um, washington dc to Kew um in outside of london um and just sort of piecing together my own personal archive of as many things that I could accumulate as possible having to do with this project. And, mm. you know, I, I, I was actually um, talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, some of it was just like strange luck. Um, and I think that sometimes we underestimate, you know, the, the, the value and the importance of just going to, libraries and trying out different types of search terms and just sort of like seeing what's out there. Um, because, you know, we don't have the old card catalogs. I remember going to Shanghai in 2002 and 2003 and sort of looking through the card catalogs for things that might be interesting to me. Um, so, you know, that whole section on my book about tea was sort of just an accidental find um, that came out of some strange search that I must have done at um, the diet library. And it sent me down a couple week long rabbit hole um, on a trip in Tokyo um, to sort of dig up as many sources as I could um, regarding tea. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think it's just been, um, I never really went into this project having I sort of never really limited the type of research I did. Whenever I went on research trips, I just tried to accumulate as much stuff as I could so that when I came home, I could sort of try to piece things together and piece, piece it all together. Um, and I think in, mm. in some ways that is, you know, very daunting because you come home with thousands of pages of stuff, but it's also, um, you know, allows for um, some of these stories to sort of be triangulated through different sources and allows for, um, you know, a variety of different narrative voices to come through in the book. Mm. Well, and may also mean that you have your own sort of trove of documents to pass on to some future. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you feel like you need to learn Japanese, I might have some, some things for you. <laughs> <laughs> you up, yeah. Um, that, well, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's really interesting to know, um, and I think you're absolutely right. That it's an interesting kind of uh, corollary of the of the notional convenience of digital uh, access and and uh, obviously online catalogs and so on. That actually not being presented with what the available options are and just having to guess what the terms that that might be most useful are. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting, almost uh, yeah, counterintuitive dimension to that uh, to that supposed convenience. Um, but well, that's great. We'll jump into the actual book itself, and I guess or the chapters of the book we've basically already started. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess conveniently enough, the kind of focus of uh, the first chapter, which takes us from I guess yeah Meiji, the Meiji Restoration in Japan, through to uh, the um, uh, colonization of the northeast of China with the Manchukuo state. Um, looks at Japanese interest in, uh, and particularly scholarly interest, I suppose, in Muslims in China 
during this period. Um, so could you say something a bit more um, about that kind of greater interest in general in uh, in Muslims living in China, whether or not that was just part of a broader Japanese engagement with, uh, or intellectual engagement, you know, with lots of different sort of new horizons during this expansive period, or or to what extent the question of uh, of Muslims in the growing empire was actually a, a political question too? Mm, yeah, I think so. In what I've sort of put together and pieced together was that there, this is part of a sort of growing intellectual exercise uh, for intellectuals in the late Meiji era to sort of engage with these new categories of, you know, world, quote unquote, world religions. Um, and so there was a sort of burgeoning interest in Islam, um, a, scholar, a scholarly interest in Islam as Meiji um, diplomats began traveling to places like Persia and the Ottoman Empire. Um, and then um, a number of Japanese officials began working in the, in the service of the Ottoman Empire, I think um, sort of solidified the fact that in order to engage with or diplomatically engage with a number of these places, there needed to be a sort of understanding of who these people were and, and what Islam was. And this, this sort of, um, I think, really came together um, after the first Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War as more and more um, Japanese intellectuals or Japanese people were spending time on the Chinese mainland and coming in contact with um, these groups of people that um, I call Sino-Muslims. Um, so there were a number of um, academic groups um, and sort of scholarly enterprises that um, researched Muslims and devoted their attention to understanding Islam and understanding Muslims. But um, as I explain in the chapter, the, these two, the, the sort of um, the politicization and the imperial sort of outlook towards Muslims really sort of came together with the academic and scholarly interest um, after the establishment of Manchukuo in 1932. And that, mm -hmm. that sort of meant that some of these academic branches then came under the auspices of the army or the navy. And, um, you know, there was a more sort of direct control um, over them after um, especially in 1932 and then again in 1937. Mm. Well, I suppose one area in which the, the kind of elision of those uh, political interests, but also, you know, some new, I guess, academic theories, um, specifically around, you know, uh, ethnicity and race and some of these things, which were such uh, touchstones of, of Japanese projects on the Asian mainland in general, um, where that's expressed most clearly in some ways is this idea of pan-Asianism and uh, I guess the notion that, you know, for all that it was an expanding empire in its own right, um, uh, authorities in Tokyo would claim also to be a liberationist uh, mission for Asia as a whole. So how did Muslims fit as far as the Japanese uh, authorities or some of these scholars' uh, thinking was concerned in, uh, in this sort of pan-Asianist vision? Yeah, I think um, one of the great appeals of pan-Asianism was its sort of intellectual flexibility and, um, you know, Muslims at this, by this time were, were very well aware of what was going on um, in the Soviet Union and for, to, Muslim, you know, um, to Muslims living under Soviet rule in Central Asia. And I think that there was a very 
it, not not everywhere, but there was a very strong anti-communist sentiment among Muslims, as well as um, there, it was sort of easy to appeal to these sort of anti-imperial and anti-Western um, sentiments that were also sort of circulating not only among Muslims in the Middle East, but among Muslims in China and um, throughout Southeast Asia. So mm. it's sort of it, you know, this, these overlaps of sort of pan-Islamism and pan-Asianism um, were quite easy to make for um, Japanese scholars of Islam, just because of the sort of flexibility of the idea of pan-Asianism. And they were really able to use it to appeal to um, Muslims, not only in North China, I think, but um, throughout the um, Southeast Asia and into other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think that the kind of potentially countervailing, I guess, tendencies evident uh, in very expansive ideas, as you're as you're saying there, like pan-Islamism or pan-Asianism, um, and and, and uh, kind of, I guess, uh, almost reverse tendency at this time towards uh, circumscribing and delineating and drawing national or ethnic boundaries, like that kind of uh, interplay is, is sort of there throughout the book. It's a very interesting, I guess, sub theme of uh, how. In general, the classificatory projects and very expansive projects sort of intersect here. Um, as far as though uh, Japan itself and the, and the home islands, as you've already mentioned, uh, was concerned, um, were there many Muslims living in Japan at this time? Or what kind of uh, Muslim community, if any, was there in uh, in Japan either prior to this period or sort of uh, finding roots at this time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there were very few. Japanese Muslims um, at this time. Um, a number of people convert. There were a number of converts, but in terms of Muslims who were um, ethnically Japanese, the, 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 there were very, very few of them. Um, the majority of Muslims who were living um, on the home islands at this time were, there was a, a quite a large group of South Asian traders um, and living in Kobe and in Nagoya. Um, and as well as um, a large group of Tatars, Volga Tatars, who had been naturalized by the Japanese government after they had fled Soviet persecution and fled the Bolsheviks um, and made their way across Siberia and eventually made their way to Tokyo. Um, so they were regularly um, used in propaganda to show their sort of, number one, they were very valuable for showing Japanese empire support of um, anti-communist and anti-Soviet policies, um, how, mm. sort of benevolence of taking these people in and, you know, naturalizing them as Japanese citizens, as well as for sort of showcasing to the world that the Japanese empire, even though there were so few Muslims that lived in Japan, you know, was, was serious about supporting um, Islam and religious freedom on the home islands. Mm. And like, well, I guess those, yeah, those sorts of narratives are easier to weave when uh, you're not dealing with that many people, and and you know there can be a sort of um, a showcase element, I guess, to the way that you purportedly treat a certain community for political purposes. Um, but, but of course, things are so much more complicated when you then actually have to deal with a much larger number of people and all of the complications that uh, you know building an empire uh, involves, uh, as as it did uh, in the Chinese case. So. Chapter two takes us into the kind of uh, negotiations that I guess multiple different sides were making uh, or engaged in uh, as as the empire exp expanded throughout the 30s uh, to, to encompass more of China. Um, so 
you look at education, you've already hinted at this and the kind of idea of the reforms and the sort of, um, uh, yeah, I guess, modernizing perhaps uh, tendencies there in Sino-Muslim communities at this time. So how does education help us understand the place of uh, Sino-Muslims uh, at this point within China and the kind of uh, decisions over belonging, uh, identity, linguistic identity, and so on that they were uh, navigating? Yeah, so I think the the main purpose, um, in, in my view, uh, for this chapter is to show that um, Sino-Muslim communities, by the time that the Japanese and the, the Chinese nationalists got interested in sort of supporting them, already had very clear ideas of how they wanted to sort of um, engage with reform ideas that they were bringing back from maybe the Middle East or how they thought about um, the, the changing role that education should play in their either decision to be a part of the Chinese nation state or to not be a part of the Chinese nation state. And um, I think that in a number of ways, what I was really trying to show was that they were actively engaged in negotiating with the, either the Chinese nationalists or the Japanese government about, you know, about how much buy-in essentially they, they would, they would have into some of these projects, either by um, imperial building projects, either from the Chinese nationalist perspective or from the Japanese empire's perspective. And so there were a lot of sort of contested debates, um, especially um, as I show in, in schools about, um, you know, which languages that they would learn. And Muslims were always very clear that they were not willing to sort of sacrifice um, the, the, Arabic, the, the Arabic component of their language learning um, in schools um, for either learning, you know, Chinese, the, the, the new like Chinese national language or um, learning Japanese. And so both the Japanese empire and the Chinese nationalists um, had to often make concessions to individual communities um, in order to ensure that they could continue to um, learn Arabic in school um, rather than sort of replace those with either Japanese or, or Chinese. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as you said, I guess, earlier on, I mean, this was a, a process of negotiation and a, a kind of, I don't know, consideration among members of this community uh, around who would better guarantee, uh, you know, their ability to uh, prioritize the, those things that they felt were most important, um, particularly in education, um, as you've said. Um, now, for those that did, uh, I guess, elect to uh, follow or, or to, to choose the, the Japanese side, if, if that's not too blunt a way of putting it, because as, as you said, or as you do explain, there wasn't always quite so binary. But for those that kind of tended towards a, a closer alignment with the Japanese, um, now you've uh, alluded to the issues around, you know, uh, collaboration and these questions of how uh, how contemporary concerns and the, and the sort of PRC historical imagination casts people at this time. But I mean, how do you how do you best uh, see or how do you see we should kind of uh, extract ourselves from this binary of collaboration and resistance and so on? How do we understand these choices in a more nuanced fashion? Yeah, um, that's a another good question. I guess. Um, I guess one of the things that I also was trying to make clear is that, you know, really until 1943, 
there, there, it was it was not clear that Japan was going to lose the war, and so the buy you know getting a buy in for from people where it looked like you know after you know in in the Japanese press and in public opinion until probably early 1943, um, you know, it didn't look like Japan was going to lose. So hedging your bets with the Japanese empire might not have seemed like a bad decision. It's only in retrospect and after Japan loses the war that um, this really um, becomes a problem for a lot of these people. So I think that that's an, an important consideration when we, when we think about why people might have, um, you know, jumped in bed with the Japanese empire. Um, another sort of consideration that I think is important for us to keep in mind is that, you know, the, 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 some of these people were just looking for really interesting opportunities and maybe their political allegiance to the Japanese empire was not very strong. But if the Japanese empire was willing to provide them with, you know, the opportunity to travel to Tokyo or the opportunity to go on um, a free Japanese-sponsored Hajj, it it might have been useful, or you know they they would have seen the the value in that and taken these opportunities um, at the time. So whether or not um, people who collaborated or worked with the Japanese Empire fully bought into their empire-building projects is something that you know I would like to bring into question but also understanding the sort of utility and the value of what Japan was providing, um, I think gives us, you know, m most people would, you know, I've taken money from the Chinese Communist Party to, uh, to study in Beijing for a year and a half. So, you know, it's, it's a sort of similar situation, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think, again, this is uh, a, a sort of granular look at some of the everyday situations that are brought up as you know very grand scale type projects uh, emerge you know i mean perhaps on one level the education policies and the ability perhaps to learn to learn arabic or to go on a, a government sponsored hajj as we'll come to in a second uh, sort of plays into a vision of uh, of some of these grander pan asian or pan islam related uh, ideas that we already mentioned but on the other hand you know yeah the, the opportunity for a better life <laughs> and or a more interesting life is of course uh, very compelling in the in the moment um and, and so yeah we'll we'll kind of i guess move on to the next chapter where again some of these uh, i guess uh, layers multiple layers of, of issues come about because uh one of the key sites that actually recurs throughout the book is uh, the tokyo mosque uh, and this kind of, i guess very uh, obvious, um, you know, symbol and, and um, uh, you know, assertion of of Japan's interest in Islam and kind of um, uh, desire to portray itself or portray the empire as a friend of Muslims. Um, so, why was the or wh when and why was the Tokyo Mosque opened, and uh, what kind of uh, what kind of activities went on there? Because it seems that uh, there was an awful lot of uh, variety of visitors that it had. Yeah. So the Tokyo Mosque. Um was built, it was opened in May, 1938. So sort of at this really, you know, this interesting point in the, the this trajectory of the war, it's after the second Sino-Japanese war has started on the Chinese mainland, but obviously the Nazis have not yet invaded Poland. So there's this sort of tenseness in the world um, about what is going to happen. The, um, the, the would-be Axis powers are already um, aligned. And so, you know, there, there's a sense of 
there's a, definitely a sense of like you're either on the Axis side or the Allied side. And so at the opening of the mosque in May 1938, um, the guest of honor that was there was um, a man named uh, Prince Hussein, and he was a son of Imam Yehia of um, Yemen. And the reason that he was there as the guest of honor was that he was actually, the Italians, the Italian fascists actually had a very close relationship with Yemen and were su supplying the Yemenis with arms and um, funds and army training to help resist um, the British on the Arabian Peninsula. So there's these sort of, um, you know, the Axis alliance, what will become the Axis, the alliance between um, the Italian fascists and the Germans, the Nazis and the Japanese sort of provides this interesting space um, for the, the movement and the traveling of Axis aligned Muslims um, during this period. So mm. yeah, the opening of the mosque um, was really meant as a propaganda showpiece. And, you know, all of these people are coming from all over um, Southeast Asia, as well as um, from China and the Middle East to um, attend the opening of, of this mosque in Tokyo. Mm. And were these visits kind of, uh, I guess, it's quite ceremonial, short-term things? I mean, what, what other kinds of um, things were involved when these delegations and things came over? Right. So the, the, that's the, the kind of interesting story here is that when these delegations would come to Tokyo, you know, the, the, these Muslim delegations would first firstly be taken to the Tokyo mosque, but then they would sort of be given, you know, the royal tour of the, the Japanese home islands where they would visit places like the Meiji Shrine and the Yasukuni Shrine, as well as um, Ueno Park in Tokyo, um, military and naval academies. So it was really a way to sort of showcase, um, firstly, Japan's uh, so, so quote-unquote benevolence towards the Muslim world, but also to showcase Japan's sort of imperial prowess, military prowess, and, um, you know, hopefully get some sort of buy-in um, from, from, from these uh, countries and diplomatic engagement. Mm. Yes, yeah, so as a kind of, I guess, alternative pole for modernization and so on, which was, you know, I guess part of the part of the project in the more immediate East Asian vicinity. But um, yeah, as, as a later chapter explores, was part of this much broader imagining of, um, I think, what you uh, call a sort of aspirational empire that went even beyond uh, the, uh, the East Asian sphere. Um, but there was also, I guess, as well as this this sort of inward from the perspective of uh, the Japanese home islands trajectory, there was also uh, considerable outward movement. Um, and I think one of the most sort of, uh, I don't know if swashbuckling would be the right term, but certainly one of the most engaging uh, sort of stories in the book as a whole is the Hajj trip made by um, one Chinese Muslim figure, uh, Tang Yichen. Um, could you say uh, something about, well, I guess, firstly, indeed, how you, how you came upon uh, Tang's uh, own account of his Hajj trip sponsored by the Japanese and uh, yeah and what happened uh, along the way. Tang's journal is actually um, published and um, it was published in a number of magazines throughout the 19 um, early 19 late 1930s and 1940s and then it was um, published as a sort of bound volume um, and I found it a copy of it at the uh, Beijing National Archive the National Library in Beijing um, so, you know, it's just this interesting source that sort of, um, I think it 
it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated source because Tong doesn't really take a side on where he stands. He's ambivalent about working for the Japanese, but he's also, you know, trying to create this sort of like apologia in some ways because um, he had he did face a lot of criticism um, for from um, national supported Muslims for his um, you know for accepting Japanese money to go on this Hajj, mm. and he's a, it's a sort of interesting story. He he his family had long it was quite well known in Beijing, um, and he you know came from a pretty wealthy family. He did go to the opening of the Tokyo Mosque. And from um, what I can gather, it was during that trip that he was asked to organize this this Hajj trip, where he recruited a number of Muslims um, it, back in Beijing. And you know, they they sort of faced all kinds of different obstacles. And you know, the 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 actual Hajj part of the the journal is very short. It's all it's really getting to Mecca and getting back from Mecca that um, present the sort of really interesting um, travel log of traveling um, on the brink of war um, in mm. 1938, 1939. Mm. Well, you mentioned that he was kind of aided along the way as well by this Axis connection and some, uh, you know, connections using uh, an Italian ship, I believe you say, yes. uh, from from uh, Hong Kong, is it all the way across to uh, to the, uh, the Gulf? Um, and I mean, in addition to that, you yeah you discussed the nationalist response you've mentioned it briefly there but i mean was the yeah what was the kind of uh, nationalist level of awareness of of the fact that this was going on at the time yeah so i mean in in some ways the amount of attention that the chinese nationalists paid to this hajj voyage w- was like free advertising for the japanese empire because they were very very concerned and very you know publishing all kinds of stuff about this Japanese-sponsored Hajj. Um, they also, in most, so the the, the group took um, an Italian ship, but because they were leaving, they left from Shanghai. They had to stop in all of these ports that were um, under British rule at the time. So they stopped in Hong Kong and Singapore and Colombo and um, in India before their final destination in Eritrea, which is under Italian control at the time. Um, so they they they. You know they're concerned mostly about Britain, the British um, customs agents. But as they discover um, on their journey, the the Chinese nationalists have a quite well developed um, network of spies throughout the diaspora that seem to sort of come and encounter them on all of the the places that they go. So in Singapore, they get picked up by some Chinese um, newspaper um, editors. And um, then when they finally get to uh, Jeddah, it's, it's made clear to them at immigration that there's already a delegation of Chinese Muslims in, in, in Mecca awaiting them. And though they had been sort of rallied up to be sent over um, from Al-Azhar, where they were studying in Egypt. So the Chinese nationalists sort of uh, drew on the networks that they had to um, sort of try to cast these um, Japanese haji or these Japanese sponsored hajis as, you know, nefarious, but they mm. were, they, they were pretty involved in um, getting, actively getting, uh, it, trying to intercept these men. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, extremely interesting, both on the kind of level of uh, everyday 
uh, you know, encounters, yeah, with uh, with spies and intrigue and so on. But also, uh, yeah, as you've mentioned, they're really the, the kind of competing uh, internationalisms and the, and the overlapping uh, kind of transnational networks that, that allow one set of people to be sending someone across the world and another set of people to be mobilizing people in those same locations uh, that they know to uh, to keep an eye on them. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a extremely entertaining and and also academically very fascinating part of the book um but uh yeah as we move on i mean it's uh it's it's into this kind of broader space that uh much of the rest of the book i guess uh takes us because um this is where we come in chapter four to this idea of um the aspirational empire and indeed this um uh, the place of tea within this which you've uh, also already alluded to um so what is this kind of aspirational empire i mean you have this very intriguing map at the very beginning of the book as a whole which includes you know uh, sort of uh, blobs of Eurasia uh, highlighted to you know to a sort of part of that sort of imagination that, that takes us well beyond the uh, the, the greater uh, East Asian prosperity uh, co-prosperity sphere and so on so what yeah what was this and and what was the place of tea within it yeah so I guess um, I I have been thinking about this for a while um, this idea that you know when when even when I teach about the Japanese Empire I always put up this like, you know, this map that sort of shows this very bounded territory of like, you know, the greatest territorial extent of the Japanese imperial project um, in, you know, by 1942. And in some ways, I just started to think of that map as very limiting, especially when I had this Japanese sponsored Hajj and these men traveling, you know, all the way to Mecca. Um, And so I started, you know, wondering about what the Japanese were thinking about with regards to Muslims and their imperial space. And it became quite clear to me that, you know, there there were plans and there were ideas to sort of develop markets. And one of the places that they were hoping to do so was um, in places such as um, where there were predominantly Muslim Muslim populations. So part of their anti-colonial and anti-Soviet rhetoric or anti-Western and anti-Soviet rhetoric um, provided was trying to provide a space to create new types of consumers that perhaps lived in these places in you know North Africa, South Asia, Central Asia, um, and to sort of develop these places um, as spaces, as, as sort of alternative spaces that could be used um, to create large markets um, that could then bolster um, the Japanese imperial presence in these places. And I think in some ways they were you know pretty successful. Um, at undermining um, certain types of markets, and I guess you know one of the things that I, I read Erica um, Erica Rappaport's um, a thirst I can't remember um, something a thirst for empire about um, tea in the British Empire, and I just um, I just come across all these sources about tea, and it became quite clear to me that this was a sort of important part of this story as such a important um, global commodity in the the first half of the 20th century. Mm, mm. And so what the, so the Japanese uh, kind of, um, yeah, imperial project included the promotion of tea as a, um, as, a as also a, as a sort of Japanese cultural staple in addition to being a, a commodity, would you say? Um, yeah, I think, I think that that would be fair to say. Um, they did also understand that, you know, a lot of Muslims already drank tea, so they could, it could be something that they could, you know, sell, tea from their own. Most of the tea that was being sold um, in these places actually came from 
part of their empire as well came from Taiwan. Um, and so I think it, it's important to sort of understand that there are sort of like different types of layers and they, and they were just trying to figure out consumer products that they produced within their empire that could potentially be exported to, um, spaces where there were predominantly Muslim populations. Mm, right. And it's also a moment, I guess, where some of the lofty, uh, whatever we think of them, sort of ideological idea, ideas about uh, trans-Asian connection and so on come down to the, I guess, grubbier business of uh, capitalist imperialism and, and, you know, just just selling stuff and making money. So I think it's a really valuable part of the picture that, that complements the you know the, the the consideration you also give to to religion or to um, yeah pan Asianism and, and the like. Um, as far as this kind of broader uh, reach of interests is concerned, of course, it also brought um, Japan's interest and, and and Japanese thinkers' interest as it extended out westward into contact with uh, what the allies of what Japan's allies were were doing uh, in relation to Muslim populations elsewhere in the world. So. Um, how did uh, Japanese thinkers and, 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 and I guess political actors view uh, Italian or, and or German approaches to Muslim populations in their own um, kind of uh, imperial exploits during the war? Uh, and what's the particular importance of Afghanistan here, which you bring into the picture? Okay. Um, yeah, I think that is... Um... So I hadn't, I hadn't sort of uh, understood how, how closely the Japanese were keeping an eye on what not only what the Nazis were doing with Muslims living, um, you know, in Nazis in the uh, sort of Muslims in the Balkans, um, but the Italians in North Africa. And um, they did, they were keeping like a fairly close watch and um, analyzing quite carefully, um, not only what the Nazis, but before them, um, the the Germans and under Kaiser Wilhelm had done in in the in the Middle East and in um, throughout the Balkans, so I think I think that there was definitely an awareness that this was something that all of three of the main Axis powers had to contend with, and trying to figure out how to um, quote unquote manage Muslims was um, something that they definitely looked to their Axis partners um, and how they were handling the, the, the situation. And mm. I think where Afghanistan comes into the picture is. You know, um, both the the Nazis and the J Japanese Empire were very interested in Afghanistan um, for a number of reasons. Mostly because it was this sort of non-aligned party place during the Second World War, but because it's you know so sandwiched between the Soviet Union and um, the British India, it sort of provided um, a geopolitical space that they could sort of exploit in certain ways. And um, both of them, though had very little connections, obviously, to Afghanistan. Um, so in order to sort of legitimize their interests in the region, they both had to sort of create their own um, historical narratives that connected them to the region. And for the Japanese, um, it was actually to a pre-Muslim Buddhist past in Afghanistan. And for the N Nazis, it was through the, the, the myth of the, the, the Aryan nation, the Aryans. Um, uh, so I think that they both managed to make connections to Afghanistan in, in, in different ways. Um, it became really important, actually, the Japanese presence in Afghanistan became very important, especially after um, Operation Barbarossa, where the, the, the Soviets and the British essentially 
um, made the Afghan, forced the Afghans to uh, kick out the majority of the Nazis who were operating in Afghanistan at the time. So the Japanese really, the Japanese networks on the ground in that region became really important for, um, for I guess, uh, maintaining intelligence networks and understanding um, what was going on in the region. Mm. And that, well, it's a, a, a fascinating kind of element, I guess, of uh, or a, a way of looking at the complexities of that region in general. I mean, uh, I know you also have uh, had some interest in, in Xinjiang in the past, and uh, I guess the kind of um, layering of, of different historical influences or, or different um, yeah, traditions and peoples encountering one another in, in Central Asia. It's interesting there to see that uh, such is the complexity of that region that both the Nazis and the, and, and, uh, and the Japanese were able to draw out elements that they liked from, or at least uh, precursors or, or you know, precedents for, for their own projects in that, in that region, uh, you know, quite in contrast to anything that may have been actually going on there, but sort of plumbing the I don't know, the depths of a, a kind of complex Silk Road past or something. Um, in any case, though, um, that kind of brings us up more or less to uh, where the book concludes, which is with some reflections on how uh, things sort of played out in the ensuing decades, because um, as is very widely known, 1945, uh, all of this came to a kind of clattering end um, with the uh, demise of the Japanese empire. But how did these kind of engagements and, and this very extensive and multi-layered and, uh, sort of interest in uh, the Muslim world and with, with Sino-Muslims in particular uh, that you've documented play out and, and kind of live on uh, in in East Asia, in, in China, um, and and elsewhere? Yeah, um, I think the, the I, I think the main sort of takeaway um, for that is that you know Sino-Muslims because of their ability to make connection because of their sort of cultural capital as uh, as Muslims and their ability to make connections beyond the sort of Sinosphere um, were were always sort of disproportionately valued in in diplomatic engagement beyond beyond East Asia. And so very quickly after the war, um, you know, the the Chinese, obviously the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists fell into a civil war. But um, I think after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, both the Chinese nationalists in exile in Taiwan and um, the, 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 the new PRC government um, in, the, in the People's Republic of China um, sort of used what the Japanese had done as a sort of playbook. And one of the things that I'm trying to make, the points I'm trying to make here is that oftentimes we assume that the PRC nationality policy is sort of like directly imposed from the Soviet model. Um, but I do think that there are, in terms especially of direct policies on the ground, especially having to do with education, that both the Chinese communists and the Chinese nationalists um, were taking a sort of page out of the Japanese playbook um, in terms of their handling and um, dealing with minority populations. Mm. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I think fascinating and and particularly poignant uh, thing to have documented really when we consider the place of, uh, of of Muslims and and not necessarily particularly the the Hui uh, or or I should say not exclusively the Hui uh, in in contemporary China but but also of course uh, Uyghurs in in Xinjiang and uh, some of the you know really uh, grievous things that are going on there right in our you know in our present day. Um, but Kelly, thank you so much uh, for 
all of your time. Uh, you've kind of done a, an amazing job, I think, of, <laughs> of giving us a sense of what's in this book. And I have to add that there's an awful lot we didn't get to, uh, which uh, should encourage uh, all of you listeners to uh, rush out and buy it immediately. Well, maybe stay in and order it. Maybe that's more appropriate. Um, but anyway, um, thank you very much for, for, for speaking to us, Kelly. But uh, perhaps before you go, you could tell us something about what you're currently working on and uh, what's, uh, yeah, what's, what's carried you beyond this book. Okay, yeah, sure. Just very quickly, um, I'm sort of bringing this book um, into the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so my new project is called Islam and Politics in the East Asian Cold War, um, where I'm going to look at the way that the nationalist government um, in exile in Taiwan, as well as the new Chinese government on the Chinese mainland, and hopefully the um, post-occupation government in Japan all sort of continued to mediate um, their relationships, especially with new post-colonial Muslim nation states um, throughout the 1950s, 60s, and probably up to the um, early 1970s. So yeah well you can wait fantastic. another 10 years for that one though <laughs> yeah well uh, yeah i'll be uh, i mean hopefully i'll have left the house by then um, but I'll, I'll come back in in order to record another podcast of course um, well uh, in any case kelly in the meantime thank you so much again for uh, appearing today it was really great having thanks you ed it's always great to talk to you uh, listeners too, it's uh, great to talk to you um, as well, although you're less responsive than uh, interviewees are. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening anyway to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it'll be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.